The ACBE Forum, Volume 54, October 2015, Number 4. Published by the American Council of the Blind. Read by Todd Smith, Bart Morse, Steve Kleesert, Thomasine Berg, and Dave Cook in the Clive W. Lacey Recording Studio of the Perkins Library. Be a part of ACB. The American Council of the Blind, registered trademark, is a membership organization made up of more than 70 state and special interest affiliates. To join, contact the National Office at 1-800-424-8666. Contribute to our work. Those much-needed contributions, which are tax-deductible, can be sent to Attention Treasurer, ACB, 6300 Shingle Creek Parkway, Suite 195, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 55430. If you wish to remember a relative or friend, the National Office has printed cards available for this purpose. Consider including a gift to ACB in your last will and testament. If your wishes are complex, call the National Office. To make a contribution to ACB by the Combined Federal Campaign, use this number, 11155. Check in with ACB. For the latest in legislative and governmental news, call the Washington Connection 24-7 at 1-800-424-8666 or read it online. Listen to ACB Reports by downloading the MP3 file from www.acb.org or call 605-475-8154 and choose option 3. Tune in to ACB Radio at www.acbradio.org or by calling 605-475-8130. Learn more about us at www.acb.org. Follow us on Twitter at ACBNATIONAL or like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash A-M-E-R-I-C-A-N-C-O-U-N-C-I-L-O-F T-H-E-B-L-I-N-D-O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L Copyright 2015, American Council of the Blind Melanie Brunson, Executive Director Sharon Lovering, Editor 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 22201 Table of Contents President's Report, Part 2, by Kim Charlson Willing, Able, and Seeking Opportunity ACB Video Highlights the Abilities of Blind Individuals by Eric Bridges ACB Honors Melanie Brunson with Resolution 2015-04 American Council of the Blind Seeks Executive Director It's October, time to think about the holiday auction, by Carla Rushevel. It's Minneapolis, Minnesota for the 2016 convention, by Janet Dickelman. The 2015 ACB Scholarship Winners, Stars Shining Bright into the Future, by Michael Garrett. 
ACB Stars Shine Bright in Dallas, Part 2, by Tom Mitchell and Judy Wilkinson. American Council of the Blind announces winners of the 2015 Audio Description Awards. Walk into Success, by Donna Brown. Road to Dallas, by Sharon Howerton. Banquet Lets the Stars Shine Bright, by Sharon Lovering. Lynn Manning Dies at 60, Blind Poet, Athlete, Watts Theatre Group Founder, by Steve Chalkins. Here and There, edited by Sharon Strakowski. Are you moving? Do you want to change your subscription? Contact Sharon Lovering in the ACB National Office, 1-800-424-8666, or via email, s-l-o-v-e-r-i-n-g at acb.org. Give her the information, and she'll take care of the changes for you. All blind musicians all the time at the ACB Radio Café www.acbradio.org slash C-A-F-E Got talent? Tell us about you. Email m-a-r-l-a-i-n-a at acbradio.org President's Report, Part 2, by Kim Charlson ACB also established the Legacy Society as part of an effort to be more proactive, honoring and recognizing individuals who have included ACB in their estate plans via a bequest or another type of planned gift and have communicated their intentions to ACB. This allows us to recognize and honor those individuals while they are still with us rather than only acknowledging their generosity after their passing. These initiatives all go far toward making it possible to support ACB's organizational work and advocacy. This work is often referred to as capacity building, and ACB has been very busy constructing our support system this past year. One example of this expanded capacity is due in large part to the generosity of J.P. Morgan Chase, who supported ACB being able to bring 21 additional members to the 2015 Mid-Year President's Meeting and Legislative Seminar in Washington, D.C. in February. Many of this group were first-timers who would not have been able to participate without this funding support. Due to this grant, 21 additional members were able to advocate in person for ACB's legislative imperatives on Capitol Hill and were able to network and learn from other affiliate leaders and take back best practices to their state and special interest affiliates. J.P. Morgan Chase also sponsored the production of an informational video entitled Blind Ability that will be previewed for the first time later this evening. It features four ACB members who are all working, discussing their lives, their goals, and how important advocacy is to each of them. It will be made available on ACB's YouTube channel for anyone to share with their organizations, potential employers, rehab agencies, or other civic groups. I hope all of you are as pleased with the video as I am. Our capacity building continued into the spring of this year. Many of you are aware of Google's presence at our convention over the past four years. We are very appreciative of their support, and this year they have worked with ACB to build and expand our capacity through their active engagement with us in Google for Nonprofits. We have received training in the use of special analytic tools that allows us to track Internet traffic to acb.org, as well as the ability to use specific terminology 
to enhance our website hits with various search engines. These are powerful tools that will increase our ability to be more visible online and to become a destination for people or media who Google for blindness-related resources. Last year, ACB launched a pilot volunteer hours reporting program with 11 committees, which collectively reported a total of 8,534 volunteer hours worth $192,444 of in-kind contribution value to ACB. We are in the process of expanding this volunteer reporting program to our other committees and task forces in 2015. This initiative shows funders our commitment to our work and documents the hours of work contributed by our hundreds of faithful volunteers in all capacities. Thank you again for all you do. In early January 2015, ACB announced a structured negotiation settlement with CVS Caremark. This settlement collaboration was with the law office of Laney Feingold and Linda Dardarian of Goldstein, Borgen, Dardarian, and Ho. CVS Health has started offering talking prescription labels, Braille, and large print labels to customers who are blind or visually impaired through its mail service company, Caremark. They are using the accessible label system provided through Envision, America's script ability program. New or existing Caremark customers can order the new labels by calling their Caremark call center or Caremark's general customer care toll-free number at 1-800-552-8159. Envision America can be reached at 1-800-890-1180. The Caremark Initiative joins previous work by ACB with CVS Health, making accessible prescription labels available from CVS Pharmacy for prescriptions ordered for home delivery through its online pharmacy, cvs.com. Ensuring that all of our members have access to important information about their prescriptions is a critical component in assisting people to independently manage their health care needs on their journey to better health. Please stay tuned for more announcements with exciting news on other prescription providers over the next several months. On the legislative front, ACB was very pleased to have Representatives Carolyn Maloney, Democrat New York, and Gus Bilirakis... Republican Florida, reintroduce H.R. 729, the Medicare Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act of 2015. This bill seeks to right a wrong that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, have perpetrated for many years through the denial of coverage of low vision devices for Medicare recipients. CMS has elected to very narrowly interpret the regulations so that devices that have one or more lenses are treated the same as ordinary eyeglasses. At the 2015 Legislative Seminar, attendees went up to Capitol Hill to seek additional co-sponsors for this piece of legislation. ACB members played a significant role in getting many of their representatives to sign on as co-sponsors of the bill. We still need more co-sponsors, so when you return home, make a pledge to have your affiliate work to get your entire House delegation to sign on as a co-sponsor. We presently have 11 co-sponsors. In my report at last year's convention, you may remember I shared audio of a taxicab sting operation conducted by a team of investigative journalists from WUSA Channel 9 in Washington 
Regarding access to taxis by blind individuals using guide dogs, over the past year, official complaints were filed with the appropriate D.C. agencies. Mediation was attempted, but not successful. In early March 2015, the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs and Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman, LLP, filed a lawsuit on behalf of Eric Bridges, and the American Council of the Blind against four taxicab companies in the District of Columbia for discriminatory practices against blind and visually impaired individuals accompanied by guide dogs. The complaint, filed in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia, alleges that Yellow Cab of D.C., Grand Cab, Elite Cab, and Pleasant Taxi all engaged in discriminatory practices when their drivers failed to pick up Eric, who was hailing a cab with his guide dog, General. This discriminatory treatment is all too common for blind and low-vision passengers who use guide dogs. The incidents alleged to the complaint are just a few examples of the systemic discrimination that blind individuals with guide dogs face on a daily basis. Equal access to public transportation and transportation services is a fundamental right under the D.C. Human Rights Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. The cab company defendants have all contributed to this systemic discrimination and illegal activity by engaging in and allowing their drivers to engage in a pattern and practice of discrimination. This is not acceptable and will not be tolerated. It is truly an honor to be working with the talented attorneys from the Washington Lawyers Committee on this case. I also want to commend Eric for his leadership and commitment to following this very strong case through to its conclusion. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs honored ACB with their organization's 2015 Alfred McKenzie Award, named for the former Tuskegee Airman and lead plaintiff in a successful class action brought by the Washington Lawyers Committee challenging racial discrimination. The award recognizes committee clients whose dedication and courage have produced civil rights victories of particular significance. I need to comment briefly on developments surrounding ACB's efforts regarding accessible currency. We continue to work with Jeffrey Levitke, our pro bono attorney, on the Bureau of Engraving and Printing case. In an article in the Washington Post in late June, the big change to the new $10 bill that no one's talking about, it was confirmed that the new $10 note will be the first bill scheduled for release with tactile features to benefit people who are blind. The widely publicized announcement that a woman will grace the redesigned $10 bill has overshadowed what we believe will be an equally historic change in the way America's money literally feels. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew told reporters that tailoring the $10 bill to the blind was in keeping with the new design's theme of democracy, but he did not specify exactly how the currency would change. We have not received any design details, but our understanding is that the new note is slated to be unveiled in 2020. Thursday morning, we will have an update from Sid Rock, chief counsel for the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, so I urge you all to be there to hear the most up-to-date news. The Bureau will be in the exhibit hall as well, continuing to distribute currency readers to those who have not received one as a part of this phase of the Meaningful Access Program. Willing, Able, and Seeking Opportunity ACB Video Highlights the Abilities of Blind Individuals Far too often in the media, people who are blind or visually impaired are portrayed in two ways— 
Either we are shown as heroes who have overcome seemingly insurmountable barriers or characterized as helpless victims who have been taken advantage of by scam artists and thieves. There seems to be very little middle ground in coverage. Do we lead regular lives? Of course. But the extremes appear to receive the lion's share of coverage. Additionally, when the subject of employment is raised within the community, the tenor of the discussion often becomes emotional. Expressions of frustration and anxiety regarding the ongoing challenges that people who are blind or visually impaired continue to experience when seeking employment are quite prevalent. Many of these emotions may come from the misperceptions by employers and some in the general public regarding the capabilities of people who are blind. In an effort to show a more complete depiction of who we are as a community, ACB embarked on a project. Blind Ability, Willing, Able, and Seeking Opportunity was created to highlight the abilities of blind individuals. This video can be used as an educational tool for hiring managers, HR professionals, or the general public. While the video first premiered during the opening session of our national conference and convention in Dallas, we wanted to highlight it again, as October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. To watch the video, go to www.acb.org slash blindability www.acb.org slash B-L-I-N-D-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y Feel free to share it with your employer, state vocational rehabilitation personnel, or others in the general public. Featured in this video are ACB members Tony Stevens, National Industries for the Blind, Tiffany Joliffe, U.S. Department of Labor, Carl Richardson, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and Rebecca Bridges, Federal Management Partners, Incorporated. We are grateful for their participation. This is the first of what ACB hopes is a series of videos that will attempt to explain who we as blind people are and confront anxiety or misperceptions that people who are not blind have of our community. Eric Bridges ACB honors Melanie Brunson with Resolution 2015-04. Whereas Melanie Brunson has offered hard work and faithful service to the women and men of the American Council of the Blind, ACB, for 17 years, and whereas a lawyer by training, Melanie joined the ACB National Office staff in 1998 as ACB's Director of Advocacy Services and... Whereas, Melanie ultimately assumed both the advocacy services and public policy responsibilities of the National Office staff, serving as ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs until her eventual appointment as ACB Executive Director in 2004. And, whereas throughout her tenure, Melanie has been a fierce champion of the rights and capabilities of people who are blind or visually impaired, and, whereas among her many accomplishments, Melanie most recently played a key role on ACB's behalf in the negotiations leading to the signing of the historic Marrakesh Treaty to eliminate the worldwide book famine for people who are blind or visually impaired around the globe, and, 
whereas Melanie particularly excels in her one-on-one work with individual ACB members experiencing a challenging rights or benefits issue, and whereas Melanie has announced her intention to retire this fall. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the American Council of the Blind in convention assembled on the 8th day of July 2015 at the Sheraton Dallas Hotel, Dallas, Texas, that this organization express its sincere gratitude to Melanie Brunson for her many years of hard work and commitment to the membership of ACB. And we, the women and men of the American Council of the Blind, wish Melanie every happiness and much fulfillment in her retirement. Adopted. Ray Campbell, Secretary. American Council of the Blind Seeks Executive Director. The American Council of the Blind, ACB, is seeking an executive director to be based out of the organization's Arlington, Virginia office. Primary responsibilities include providing leadership and direction to ensure that ACB has the necessary resources to successfully fulfill its mission. The executive director works with the president, board, and membership in the development of policies and strategies for the organization and holds primary responsibility for their implementation. The executive director has overall supervisory responsibility for the staff, including contractors. The executive director represents ACB in the pursuit of its mission with members, donors, media, government entities, agencies for the blind, and other organizations. To apply, you must have demonstrated passion and ability to motivate and inspire the community about the mission of ACB in promoting independence for people who are blind or visually impaired, demonstrated oral and written communication skills, experience in fundraising, including grant writing and cultivation of foundations, major donors, and corporate sponsors, experience and ability with financial management, including the development and implementation of budgets, demonstrated leadership skills and collaborative management style, ability and experience in the development and implementation of strategic plans, and ability and experience in the effective utilization of volunteers, bachelor's degree or higher, and five to seven years of experience in positions of increasing management leadership responsibility in government or for a not-for-profit organization, preferably one serving a national constituency. Individuals interested in applying must provide the following. One, a resume. Two, a cover letter addressing how your personal and professional experience qualifies you for this position. Three, three references, one of which is a previous employer. And four, one writing sample, maximum three pages. All documents should be submitted as Word attachments and should be sent by email to executivesearch at acb.org, E-X-E-C-U-T-I-V-E-S-E-A-R-C-H at acb.org. Please put Attention Search Committee, American Council of the Blind, in the subject line. A detailed position description is available upon request. For more information about the American Council of the Blind, visit www.acb.org. Please feel free to share this announcement.
This position will remain open until filled. The American Council of the Blind is an equal opportunity employer and offers a competitive salary and benefits package. It's October. Time to think about the holiday auction by Carla Rushevel. It's time for ACB's fourth annual holiday auction, coming to you live from Louisville, Kentucky, on ACB Radio on December 6 from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 to 8 p.m. Pacific. The 2014 holiday auction was a huge success. Packed with holiday treats and great gift ideas, the auction raised over $11,000 for ACB Radio, up from $5,000 in 2013. The ACB Radio staff and Holiday Auction Committee are teaming up to bring you a wonderful shopping experience and the perfect opportunity to support ACB Radio. But we need your help now in order to make the 2015 auction a success. Individuals, chapters, and affiliates, and businesses are invited to contribute items to the holiday auction. Some examples of popular items include candy, cookies, and other holiday treats, jewelry, sports memorabilia, handcrafted items, unusual music boxes. Gift cards and holiday decorations. Join our 2015 holiday parade of states by contributing a food or other item traditional to your area. All items donated to the holiday auction will be displayed on our auction preview pages, available on www.acb.org by mid November. All Donors will be acknowledged both on the website and on ACB Radio during the auction. Donors and winning bidders will also be spotlighted in the ACB Braille Forum in early 2016. Notify us now that you plan to contribute items to the auction. Share a description of each item with us so we can begin creating its preview page. Send all items except homemade. Goodies to our Minnesota office by November 1. This is extremely important because we need to take photos and post them to our preview pages. To donate items to the ACB Radio Holiday Auction, contact Carla Rushevel, Chair, at 502 897 or C A R L A 40206 at gmail.com. Or Brian Charlson, Vice Chair, at 617-926-9198 or B R I A N dot C H A R L S O N at C A R R O L L dot org. Then tune in on Sunday, December 6, between 7 and 11 p.m. Eastern at www.acbradio.org or by calling 605-475-8130 from any telephone. 
Thanks in advance for your generous support of ACB Radio. It's Minneapolis, Minnesota for the 2016 Convention by Janet Dickelman. Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes, the Mall of America, Garrison Keeler, and the 2016 ACB Conference and Convention. Minneapolis is a wonderful city to visit, especially during the summer. There may be a day or two in the 90s, but average temperatures are in the low 80s. The Hyatt Regency, home to ACB in 2016, is located in downtown Minneapolis at 1300 Nicolette Mall. The hotel is close to restaurants, shopping, museums, and the Minnesota Twins and Vikings stadiums. Traveling to Minneapolis is easy. Fourteen commercial passenger airlines service the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, MSP. Nine are located at Terminal 1 Lindbergh, and five are located at Terminal 2 Humphrey. MSP is the hub for Delta and Sun Country, Other airlines serving the Twin Cities include Air Canada, Air France, Alaska Airlines, American Airlines, Condor, Frontier, Great Lakes, Iceland Air, Southwest, Spirit, United Airlines. You can also travel to Minneapolis by Amtrak, Greyhound, or the Megabus. Both bus stations are less than a mile from the Hyatt. The Amtrak station is in St. Paul, approximately 12 miles from the hotel. Minneapolis is served by a light rail system that stops eight blocks from the Hyatt. You can travel by light rail to the airport, downtown St. Paul, and the Mall of America. City buses stop within two blocks of the hotel. Information regarding certification for paratransit will be sent out closer to the convention. Conference and convention dates are Friday, July 1st through Saturday, July 9th. As usual, the convention will feature an exhibit hall showcasing vendors from around the country. The exhibit hall will be open from Saturday, July 2nd through Wednesday, July 6th. ACB's opening general session is Sunday, July 3rd, with daily sessions Monday through Thursday mornings and all day Friday. Tech sessions and committee and affiliate programming begin on Saturday and run through Thursday. Convention week culminates with our banquet Friday evening, July 8th. Our first tours will be on Friday, July 1st. Our final tours will be on Saturday, July 9th. Stay connected. Once again this year, the convention announce list will be filled with information about the convention. Subscribe to the list today by sending a blank email to acbconvention-subscribe at acblists.org, A-C-B-C-O-N-V-E-N-T-I-O-N 
S-U-B-S-C-R-I-B-E at A-C-B-L-I-S-T-S dot org. If you've been on the list in the past, you need not subscribe again. Don't have email? No problem. Convention updates will also be featured on ACB Radio and by telephone through Audio Now at 605-475-8130. Hotel details. Room rates at the Hyatt Regency, Minneapolis, are $89 single or double. There is an additional $10 per night charge per person for up to four people in a room. Applicable state and local taxes are currently 13.4%. For reservations by telephone, call 1-888-421-1442 and be sure to mention you are attending the ACB convention in order to obtain our room rate. To make reservations online, visit www.acb.org and follow the 2016 convention link. Convention Contacts 2016 Exhibit Information Michael Smitherman, 601-331-7740 AMDUO at BELL S-O-U-T-H dot net. 2016 Advertising and Sponsorships Margarine Beeman 512-921-1625 O-L-E-O-5-0 at H-O-T-M-A-I-L dot com For any other convention-related questions, please contact Janet Dickelman, Convention Chair, at 651-428-5059 or via email janet.dickelman at gmail.com. The 2015 ACB Scholarship Winners Stars Shining Bright into the Future by Michael Garrett. We've completed another season of selecting the ACB scholarship winners. We received 124 applications, which were sorted, categorized, and distributed to their respective subcommittees. Each application was carefully scrutinized by each subcommittee member before diligent deliberations took place. After all that work, we chose the winners. The most rewarding part of the process was calling the recipients and informing them that they had won a scholarship. What a heartwarming feeling. Without exception, this year's group of students showed the same level of exuberance as past winners. ACB students Brenda Dillon Memorial Scholarship, Elaine Phillips, Massachusetts, Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering, Kelly Cannon Memorial Scholarship Hunter Joswiak, Virginia Majoring in Computer Science William G. Corey Memorial Scholarship Elizabeth McKay, Pennsylvania Bachelor of Science in Theology 
Eunice Fiorito Memorial Scholarship. Christiane Steele, Iowa, Bachelor of Science in Special Education. John Hebner Memorial Scholarship. Tiffany Joliffe, Virginia. Master of Science in Organizational Development. James R. Olson Memorial Scholarship. Michael Griffin, Florida. Bachelor of Science in Information Technology. The Ross N. Pangier Foundation for the Visually Impaired Scholarship. Hamid Hamraz, Kentucky, Master of Science in Computer Science. Cassandra Mendez, Ohio, Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Engineering. Michael Rulliard, Connecticut, Bachelor of Science in Information Technology. Floyd Qualls Memorial Scholarships. Michael Coughlin, Pennsylvania, Bachelor of Business Management. Sherry Lilly, New York, Bachelor of Science in Psychology, Counseling. Lauren Long, Texas, Master of Science in Marriage and Family Therapy. Jessica Menisi, Pennsylvania, Majoring in Communications. Andrew Shaw, New York, Majoring in Business. Arnold Sadler Memorial Scholarship. Thomas Woodyard, Georgia, Majoring in Japanese and International Studies. Norma Schechter Memorial Scholarship and Dwayne Buckley Memorial Scholarship. Stephanie Zundell, New Jersey, Bachelor of Science in Early Childhood Development. Bay State Council of the Blind Scholarship. Sarah Wiles, Massachusetts, Juris Doctorate. Oregon Council of the Blind Scholarship. Patricia Kepler, Oregon, Master of Public Policy. In a couple of cases, we combined scholarships to help the winners a bit more. Scholarship amounts ranged from $1,500 to $3,500. This group of students exhibited a broad range of interests and displayed a diversity of vocational endeavors. They were intelligent, energetic, and enthusiastic about their future. It takes quite a bit of time and attention to detail to assure that the scholarship selection process goes well. It's a labor of love for those of us on the committee. We're grateful to the Minnesota staff for making the material accessible to us. And, of course, our most sincere gratitude goes to our donors, who make these awards possible. The investment in these students' lives cannot be quantified in today's dollars. Their goals have yet to be reached, their accomplishments have yet to be completed, and their dreams have yet to come true. But ACB has made a small contribution toward the professions they will pursue. Caption Michael Garrett, left, wearing a brown suit, cream-colored shirt, and golden brown tie, guides Tommy Woodyard, right, to the microphone to give a short speech. Woodyard is the recipient of the Arnold Sadler Memorial Scholarship. He sports a black suit, white shirt, and black tie with silver flecks. ACB Stars Shine Bright in Dallas, Part 2 by Tom Mitchell and Judy Wilkinson Wednesday The Wednesday morning session was jam-packed with events and information. Amy Furash, National ADA Coordinator for J.P. Morgan Chase, updated us on how the company is improving its services for blind and visually impaired people, 
including issuing new Braille companion cards. Then the convention heard from Tom Lodkowski, vice president of Comcast Accessibility, who spoke about Comcast's talking guide and voice-controlled remote. He also showed two videos, Emily's Oz, a commercial aired this year during the Oscar Awards program, and a video on how that spot was made, both with audio description. Afterward, Denise Colley presented the Vernon Henley Media Award to Comcast. Mark Reichert read a resolution requesting the National Endowment for the Arts to include audio description as an inherent requirement, as appropriate, for all state art agency grants, and that NEA create a national registry of sites where audio description is available, and that they work with ACB's Audio Description Project to implement this proposal. He also tackled a second resolution requesting the FCC commit to a plan to hire at least three professional staff to serve in the Disability Rights Office of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau who have experience in working with blindness and deafblindness. Both resolutions were adopted. John Huffman then gave the first reading of two amendments to the Constitution and bylaws. One concerned terms on the Board of Publications, the other dealt with voting eligibility. ACB Secretary Ray Campbell introduced the first speaker, Joe Wilson, from Talking Book Publishers, Incorporated. His talk, entitled From Stage to Page, The Making of a Gun-Slinging Narrator, not only included biographical information about himself, but also gave us the nuts and bolts of producing a book. Wilson's sense of humor and informative talk on recording talking books, as well as his work in crisis intervention, were well received by all. The convention next heard from Melanie Brunson, ACB's executive director, who is retiring at the end of September. For the full text, see Bidding ACB a Very Fond Farewell and Reflecting on the Last 17 Years, September 2015. Four past presidents and current president, Kim Charlson, presented Melanie with a variety of thank-you gifts. The convention unanimously adopted a resolution thanking her for her service. Janet Dickelman then gave the convention report. Next year's convention will be held in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The 2017 convention in Sparks, Nevada. After Janet's report was a discussion of radio reading services and their role in the 21st century. Presented by Mike Duke, Director... Mississippi Radio Reading Service, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Jackson, Mississippi, and Steve Cumming, former station manager, North Texas Radio for the Blind, and Austin Information Radio, Dallas, Texas. Rob Haverty of Microsoft gave a report on Windows 10. Microsoft is trying to wrap up the accessibility of Windows 10, he stated, Microsoft's new mission is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. To achieve that, the company is developing technology that is accessible to everyone. Microsoft is changing its focus from creating specialized accessibility solutions to integrating them into mainstream solutions. 
Accessible technology doesn't just benefit people with disabilities, he said. Haverty mentioned that Microsoft's partnership with ACB has been valuable, that members had already provided feedback on Windows 10. Several vendors had visited Microsoft's campus to work with developers on resolving compatibility issues. Windows 10 will become available on July 29th for computers and tablets. He advised those who use screen readers or magnification software to check with their AT vendor about Windows 10 compatibility before upgrading. After you upgrade, Haverty noted, there are three things you need to do. 1. Set your web browser to the program you're most used to using with your access software, e.g. Internet Explorer. 2. Install a third-party PDF reader, such as Adobe Reader. 3. Use Outlook and Office desktop applications. Microsoft's new Internet app, called Edge, will not be accessible at launch, he added. Thursday. During Google's Diamond Sponsor presentation, Charlson asked Eve Anderson, Engineering and Product Manager Core Team at Google Accessibility, a series of questions. Anderson informed everyone that accessibility is part of Google's mission. Google runs more than a dozen internal courses which they hope to make available to the general public. With regard to CAPTCHAs, screen readers can now click the I'm a human button with a backup of a better-sounding audio CAPTCHA. She encouraged feedback and mentioned Google's Impact Challenge, a fund to help nonprofits working with people with disabilities. They are looking for innovative ideas, not just technology, but process, too. Emerald sponsor Verizon's Jeffrey A. Kramer, Executive Director of Public Policy, Strategic Alliance, stated Verizon hopes to have offerings in the marketplace soon for such things as large remotes and set-top boxes. He invited us to go into the stores where they want to work with customers one-on-one. Ruby's sponsor, Sprint's Kelly Egan, blindness and low-vision outreach specialist, emphasized Sprint's commitment to stuff for us. Sprint has a wide variety of devices, from the simple phones that talk right out of the box up to the smartest of smartphones. She spoke of Sprint's new all-in plan, $80 for one line with all data, voice, and text. She told us about the new direct-to-you plan that is being tested in several cities where technicians will come to you. Huffman presented two amendments relating to our record date. The first proposal would establish the record date in the Constitution under Article 3, Section C. It passed with a friendly amendment. The second proposal would amend Bylaw 2 to reflect the fact that affiliates could add new members after March 15th. But if they paid after the record date, they would not be eligible to vote at that year's convention. It passed, too. Reichert presented two resolutions, one dealing with Microsoft and Windows 10 and another concerning the Department of Justice and the ADA. Both passed. Carla Rushable introduced Chen Guanchang, the barefoot lawyer and his interpreter, Danica Mills, 
who held us spellbound as he recounted his life as a blind man in China, his work on behalf of women and the disabled, his imprisonment and house arrest, and his harrowing escape to the American embassy in 2012, and subsequent arrival with his family in the U.S. His book is available from NLS. Sidney Rock, chief counsel for the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, gave an update on currency access. He reviewed his crash course in the history of the meaningful access issue. He stated that no other currency in the world is as difficult to modify, but that we've learned from other countries what not to do. He presented an array of challenges facing the Bureau. With tactile markings, bills can't be stacked. They gum up the works of cash registers, vending machines, etc. Plastic melts. Bills wear out. He mentioned the 2020 $10 note with a woman as well as markings. The Bureau is still working on issues such as durability. The Bureau continues to implement high contrast on bills other than the $1, which by law cannot be changed. They are working with NLS to distribute currency readers. 30,000 have been distributed or are on order. The iNote app is also available. Brian Charlson raised the issue of problems increasingly encountered by non-citizens unable to get currency readers. The convention adopted a resolution on this issue. Dan Spoon and Dan Dillon, co-chairs of ACB's Resource Development Committee, along with Donna Brown, Walk Committee Chair, and Leslie Spoon, Auction Chair, shared a lot of good news. The auction raised $19,320. The walk raised more than $51,000 as of July 9th. The RDC has established five giving society levels. So far, 193 people have pledged over $201,000. Rushevel then presented the Treasurer's Report, she reminded attendees that because of a huge bequest, we were in the black last year. The board has a plan for a balanced budget by 2017. Revenue figures for 2014 came in at 1,158,625. The ACB Angels program raised $4,000. Telemarketing raised just $89,082. Fundraising revenue was $106,498. The audio description project brought in $23,150. Expenses for 2014 were $1,065,887. Income from the 2014 convention was $83,344. The 2014 surplus was 247728 Lane Waters, ACB's controller, congratulated the board on its efforts toward a balanced budget. Audited financial statements are available on ACB's website. Sandra Rukonich of Salt Lake City, Utah, shared her story about becoming our Braille Authority of North America representative. Banna makes rules regarding how Braille and tactile graphics are written. Its website has lots of information on the Unified English Braille Code. New knitting and crochet guidelines have been posted, 
and work is beginning on the Braille Music Code. Michael Garrett, chair of the ACB Enterprises and Services, ACBES, board, gave a brief report. All our thrift stores are profitable. He introduced Jerry Cooper, manager of the Lubbock store since 2003, who has brought in $1.5 million in his years of service. The convention gave Jerry a huge round of applause. Jerry thanked the Minnesota office, his staff, the board, and the membership. Reichert presented Resolution 2015-08 regarding regulations for the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, WIOA, which passed. Friday. This day was all business. Huffman read two amendments to the Constitution and bylaws. The first added a sentence to Article 5. Any member of the Board of Publications whether appointed or elected, who serves more than half of the assigned duration of a term, shall have the term counted as a full term served. The amendment was adopted. A second amendment would change Article 4, Sections A and B, by removing the last sentence from each section, which specifies in the case of officers that no more than two may be from a single state, and in the case of directors, no more than one may be from a single state. The following sentences would be added to Section C. Not more than three voting members of the Board of Directors of any one state at the time they assume the office. In no case shall three officers or three directors be elected from a single state. Following discussion and a vote, that amendment was defeated. Throughout the day, Reichert read resolutions. Space does not permit a full discussion of all resolutions considered. Resolution 2015-09, expressing ACB's dissatisfaction with the National Council on Disabilities failure to publicize the availability of best practices for the provision of accessible drug label information, was adopted. Resolution 2015-11, which calls upon the Academy for Certification of Visual Rehabilitation and Educational Professionals, ACVREP, to establish standards to ensure the confidence of assistive technology trainers, was adopted. Resolution 2015-12 calls upon Greyhound Lines, Incorporated to cease charging blind people administrative fees for using their telephone services and to make its website accessible. It, too, was adopted. Following a short break, it was time for elections. Because the offices of ACB President, First Vice President, Secretary, and Treasurer were uncontested, all of those office holders were re-elected to serve new terms. However, Marlena Lieberg elected not to run for another term as second vice president. John McCann of Tucson, Arizona, was unanimously elected to that office. This created a vacancy in the board of directors, and four candidates stepped forward to fill that position. Jeff Bishop, Tucson, Arizona, Dan Dillon, Hermitage, Tennessee, Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia, and Fred Scheigert, Saratoga Springs, New York. After the first election, the two with the fewest votes were dropped and a runoff election held. The winner was Jeff Bishop. While the ballots were being counted, the Assembly considered more resolutions. 
Resolution 2015-14, commending Netflix for being the first Internet content provider to incorporate audio description into its movies, was adopted. Resolution 2015-16, which calls upon the Rehabilitation Services Administration to adopt regulations that establish clear requirements for the training of personnel who will be permitted to provide services under the OIB program, and that funding be provided only to those private agencies whose personnel meet such standards, was also adopted. The resolutions thanking the hotel staff, the convention host committee, and the ACB of Texas, and the volunteers who assisted convention guests were all adopted. Other resolutions concerned inaccessible apps for iOS devices, guide dog safety, and the Social Security Administration. All were adopted. After several announcements and a final door prize, the 2015 conference and convention adjourned. Captions Joe Wilson, left, wearing a blue shirt with a pocket full of pens and pencils, begins to tell the convention how he became a talking book narrator and what a day in his life as a narrator is like. Behind him is ACB Secretary Ray Campbell, wearing a dark suit and white shirt, walking away from the podium microphone. Rob Haverty of Microsoft, standing at the podium microphone wearing a dark gray suit, blue shirt, and red diamond pattern tie, tells the convention about Windows 10 and its accessibility. Chen Guangchang, left, stands tall behind the podium microphone, wearing a dark gray suit, light gray tie, white shirt, and dark sunglasses. He talks about his escape from house arrest in China. Danica Mills, seated on the right with a table microphone in front of her, wearing a white three-quarter sleeve jacket over top a black dress, translates his speech. The ACB board, officers, and executive director... Top row, left to right, Jeff Tom, George Holliday, Dan Spoon, Ray Campbell, Alan Peterson, Michael Garrett, Mitch Pomerantz. Bottom row, seated, left to right, David Trott, Jeff Bishop, Carla Rushevel, Denise Colley, Kim Charlson, Katie Frederick, John McCann, Melanie Brunson, and Burl Colley. American Council of the Blind announces winners of the 2015 Audio Description Awards. The American Council of the Blind, ACB, presents the winners of the 2015 Achievement Awards in Audio Description, an initiative of ACB's Audio Description Project, ADP. In conjunction with ACB's 54th Annual Conference and Convention in Dallas, Texas, the awards were presented at a plenary session of the conference. These awards are designed to recognize leadership in the description field within the wide range of its applications. And so this year, we are delighted to present achievement awards in the fields of performing arts, media, museums, in the international arena, and a special recognition award. For achievement in the performing arts, we are recognizing one of the most experienced audio describers for live theater. Jesse Minkert is the head of Arts and Visually Impaired Audiences, AVIA, in Seattle. And he recently remarked, Access is a basic human right. 
I'm honored to have played a small part in expanding the experience of the arts for so many people over the years. In 1985, Minkert, who has diabetic retinopathy, was asked by the Seattle Arts Commission to create a pilot audio description program for a Seattle theater performance. Since that time, AVIA has provided audio descriptions for 674 theatrical productions, dance and music performances, and exhibitions over the last 31 years. One of his innovative contributions is The Package, an integrated access service for audio described performances. The Package provides tickets, transportation, a sighted guide, and audio description, and makes it possible for many blind individuals to appreciate and participate in the arts who otherwise could not afford or be able to get to a performance. In the media category, We are pleased to acknowledge a group that was recognized yesterday by our President Kim Charlson. Netflix has made an important commitment to making their streaming service more accessible by adding audio description to their service. Netflix began in April with the new critically acclaimed series, Marvel's Daredevil. Many more described films are on the way. This year, for the first time, we are presenting a special recognition achievement award to someone who has contributed countless volunteer hours to the audio description project. Thanks to him, we were the first organization to offer on our website a comprehensive day by day listing of what's being broadcast on television with description. The winner is Sebastian Andrade Miles of Glendale, Colorado. We are particularly excited to be able to offer our museum's audio description achievement award to Dallas's own Meadows Museum of Art at Southern Methodist University. The Meadows brought Joel Snyder to the museum to train the staff in the intricacies of providing live audio description during guided tours. It's that sort of commitment that is so meaningful. This year, The International Achievement Award goes to a woman that we've known about for quite some time. In the UK, she is often referred to as the face and voice of audio description. Anne Hornsby is the head of the British audio description provider Minds Eye, and she is truly a pioneer of audio description. On her own initiative, she researched and introduced audio description at Bolton Octagon. Where she was head of marketing, in response to a blind theater goer who had heard about its development in America. For almost 30 years, Anne has been a constant, dependable presence on the British audio description scene. She is widely respected not only for her skills as a describer and trainer, but also for her artistic and professional integrity, her communication skills, and her rare ability. To blend the ideal and the pragmatic. The Margaret Fansteel Award for Research and Development is being awarded to Robert Pearson and Accessible Media Incorporated, AMI, based in Toronto. The group maintains Canada's accessible channel, where everything aired is described. But specifically, we are recognizing AMI's work developing the AMI player. The first fully accessible online broadcast media player in North America.
Available exclusively on AMI.ca. The AMI player provides an accessible broadcast experience to AMI audience members while giving them the ability to access AMI-TV original content in an on-demand format. The AMI player provides content created for broadcast that includes open-described video and optional closed captioning and transcript features. And last but not least, the Barry Levine Memorial Award for Career Achievement. The study and practice of audio description is widespread throughout Europe. It is considered a form of audiovisual translation. More than anyone else in the world, Dr. Pilar Orero is responsible for the proliferation and study of audio description. Indeed, it is her understanding of and support for AD not only as an academic exercise, but also as a profession, that makes her particularly worthy of this year's Career Achievement Award. At the University of Barcelona in Spain, Orero teaches audio description and has positioned the discipline as an integral part of the master in audiovisual translation degree and has done more than anyone to encourage young professionals in the study and practice of audio description. She is the leader of two university networks, which group 24 Spanish universities devoted to audio description and media accessibility research and training. Orero's work with description began almost 20 years ago as the leader of Europe's transmedia group. Her focus since then has been the fostering of new AD leaders and practitioners. With her leadership, AD is understood as both a critical access technology for people who are blind and a legitimate form of translation, worthy of advanced study and consideration as a linguistic discipline. She has demonstrated a profound influence on description throughout the world, and that has earned her the 2015 Barry Levine Memorial Award for Career Achievement in Audio Description. Walking to Success The 2015 ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk in Dallas was a smashing success. Approximately 80 convention attendees rose early on Sunday, July 5, to walk the halls of the Sheraton and the Plaza of the Americas for ACB. Words cannot describe the enthusiasm that filled the air by participants in the room where the walk began and finished. Along with the huge turnout of on-site walkers contributing to the success of this year's event, the enormous number of donations brought in by participants was unreal. At the time of this writing, walkers have raised just over $54,000 for ACB and its affiliates. Thanks to everyone who had a part in making this fundraising event both fun and successful. A great big thank you to Nancy Becker and the rest of the staff in the Minnesota office for their assistance and patience with processing those all-important donations and helping participants set up their individual and team web pages. Thank you to all of the participants for the time and energy you put into seeking donations. Finally, thank you to ACB members, affiliates, and local chapters who gave generous donations to the walk. We'll be walking in Minnesota in 2016. I hope you will join us. 
Donna Brown. Road to Dallas by Sharon Howerton I am not a big group person or one who longs to attend large conventions, but when I heard that ACB was meeting in Dallas, I had to go. That was where President Kennedy was killed. Do you remember the day, November 22, 1963? Humor me as I travel back and forth in time. When I told my oldest son of my experience at the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, he asked me an amazing question. Could you feel it? My immediate response was, oh my goodness, yes. November 22, 1963. I was in the eighth grade at St. Florian's School on the far side of Chicago. A kid named Chester came back from lunch and said, President Kennedy's been shot. Ani Simmons, the education program's coordinator at the Sixth Floor Museum, asked me what happened after that. I think we went to church and were sent home, I said. All I remember of that weekend was sitting in front of the TV, which, being blind, I could not see, all the way to Monday in the funeral. I don't think anyone else at home, my parents and two sisters, watched with me. At one point in the evening, I think I prayed and felt this tingling on my face, something I've never shared with anyone. Fast forward to 2015. In preparation for the convention, Janet Dickelman sent out an amazing amount of useful information. Love Field was closer to the hotel. Oh no, not that. Love Field was the place from which JFK's body was flown. I couldn't. My colleague Dawn was flying to Dallas, too, and she suggested we fly together. Fortunately, we flew out of Chicago's O'Hare and into Dallas-Fort Worth. A few weeks before we left, I decided to call the museum to see if it was accessible to the blind and visually impaired. The receptionist said, Oh, yes. We are working on making it more accessible. I think you should talk with Ani, our director of education. She may not still be here. It's a little after five, but let me transfer you to her. Ani was there and was very receptive to me. I was about to leave, she said, but something told me to take this call, and I'm so glad I did. When you get your ticket, let me know, and when you are done with your tour, have them call me. We can go across the street to have a refreshment, and I'd love to hear your impressions. With my son Kevin's help, I purchased my ticket for July 7 at 10 a.m. On Sunday, July 5, along with a busload of conventioneers, my guide dog Cameo and I took a bus tour of Dallas. After a few turns, the tour guide said, This is the sixth floor museum where President Kennedy was shot. No moment of silence to remember? No asking for a moment of silence to remember? Well, I did it privately. I guess it really was 52 years ago. At first, I thought perhaps Cameo and I could walk there. Maybe it wasn't far, but then I thought, it's hot, and we don't know where we are. Cameo has had enough stress being in a new place with all the activity of people, other dogs, and all. Let's take a cab. Why risk getting lost and put her through all that? You look very comfortable, Dawn said to me at breakfast Tuesday. I wore a simple dress for the occasion. Around 9.30, Cameo and I went to the concierge desk and asked about a cab. The doorman found us one. The driver, who said he was from West Africa, said he had been in Dallas for only a few months 
having come here from New York with his wife and three young daughters. When we got to the museum a few minutes later, I asked, Do you know the significance of this building? No, he said. This is the place from which President Kennedy was shot. Oh, he said, I always wondered what this building was. The driver walked Cameo and me into the building, up a flight of concrete steps. Were those the same steps that Lee Harvey Oswald walked when he went in to work that November day? We were shown to a bench to the right of the entrance. A family was also waiting to get in. When they opened, I was directed to someone and gave her the printout of my ticket receipt. I was taken to an elevator by a young lady who went up to the sixth floor with us, found me a seat in a quiet area, and handed me a small device with a headset. One could walk through the museum listening to each panel and viewing the photos, but to me it made more sense to sit quietly and listen, with an occasional prompt from my museum helper if I didn't press the numbers correctly to proceed to the next panel. The narrator, whose name I did not catch, said he had been on the scene at the time of the shooting and ran into the book depository, now the Dallas Courthouse and Sixth Floor Museum, to call his radio station to report the shooting. Did he run up those same stairs and go into that office where we had just presented our ticket? The audio tour started with the campaign in 1960, including the Nixon-Kennedy debate, and went through the road to Dallas, the shooting, the trip to Love Field, President Johnson's inauguration, the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald, the funeral, and the Warren report. It took about an hour. I didn't have to think about navigating anything. I just had to listen and realized I remembered it all, 52 years later. I remembered hearing almost all of those news clips. There were times that the narrator would say, If you want to hear more, go to the alcove behind you. As we sat there, people came and went, chatting like any other ordinary day, talking, laughing. Didn't they know? Couldn't they feel it? Guess it's just me. Our guide took us back downstairs on the elevator. She introduced us to Ani, and we went across the street to the cafe, where we had a long chat. It was a small street, not anywhere near as wide as the street on which I live, just a small, ordinary, lighted city intersection where, 52 years ago, people had lined the street to see the presidential motorcade pass and to see the president shot. Even before we left the building, Ani let me feel the bricks of another building in a passageway through which we walked. Now these are the original bricks of the depository, she explained. The elevator you rode in was not there then, but the place where you sat that was there then. This building was opened in 1988. Over tea, we talked about the tour and the museum. I asked her if the supplemental material was audio-described. She said no. I mentioned that I wished it were, not to hold up a person's tour, but to be available to a visually impaired person or anyone who might want to hear that additional information. Should we have things labeled in Braille, she asked. No, not really, I said. Having audio information is more useful to anyone. I am a good Braille reader, but not everyone is. Besides, audio would be much less expensive. That is the thing about accessibility, Ani said. If you really think about it, something that you think might help one group actually helps a lot more people. 
Ani explained that there were several continuously running feeds as well as the place where the funeral and memorial clips ran all the time. Would you like to go back and hear them, she asked. At first I said no, but then I enthusiastically said yes. I might never be there again. But could we try to let Cameo relieve? Of course we could, she said. We walked across the street again to a grassy area. I don't know if it was the grassy knoll. And it struck me that 52 years ago, people had been standing there waiting for the presidential motorcade and seeing history. Another day of infamy in the life of the United States. There are squirrels around here, Ani explained, and sometimes homeless people sleep here at night. Maybe that is what she smells. We tried twice. She wouldn't go. Back into the building we walked, up those stairs, now the site of the courthouse. The judge is still in there, Ani said. I can see him through the window. Ani then took me into the library, and it was from this room that the narrator called WFAA to report the shooting. Now it is a Kennedy library, with hundreds of hours of audio and any kind of book or video one might want concerning the assassination. People come here and do research for weeks at a time, Ani explained. There are three computers here. They can just sit here and listen and read. At the time we entered, no one was there. I knew that right outside of the Sheraton Dallas, a light rail train ran. I also heard trains going past the museum. Were those trains here back then, I asked Annie. She said they were. Would that be the same train that runs past the Sheraton, I asked. Probably not, she replied. That train is DART, Dallas Area Rapid Transit. We then went back up to the museum. Annie let me feel the now-restricted freight elevator, which had been used back then to transport the boxes of textbooks to their place and eventually to where they were shipped. She took me to the sniper's perch, now glassed in, from which Oswald shot. We then went a few steps farther to another glassed-in area where a rifle similar to the one he had used was placed among boxes of books, just as it had been found in 1963. As we stood at the sniper's perch, she explained that the trees are much higher now. I couldn't help but wonder, how could those shots be so perfect and exact that they hit Kennedy and the other dignitaries like Governor Connolly and not anyone on the street? We heard the various audio feeds and went to sit briefly in a small quiet area where the funeral and other memorials continuously ran. Many times you can hear a sniffle in here, she said, as people remember. Ani explained that the seventh floor is used for large gatherings. She took us up there, too. I asked if the banquet hall where the Dallas residents were waiting for President Kennedy was still there. Oh, yes. It's used all the time, she said. By this time, it was around 1 p.m., and we headed back to the Sheraton Dallas, awed and grateful for a life-changing experience. Banquet Lets the Stars Shine Bright by Sharon Lovering ACB President Kim Charlson welcomed everyone to the banquet. By now, in this week, you've heard plenty from me so I'm going to take the evening off and introduce you to this evening's Master of Ceremonies, Jeff Tom, Charlson said. Tom introduced the head table as the servers began delivering dinner. 
he shared a few factoids about Brian Charlson, including a reference to page 173 of the Deflategate report and Kenneth Semyon waiting to become a pastor. After a few door prizes, Shelley Hart and Chip Haley presented the James R. Olson Distinguished Service Award. Haley thanked the awards committee members for their work this year and urged audience members to submit nominations for the national awards early next year. He gave the mic to Hart, who gave a brief description of the award before describing this year's recipient. In the early 1970s, this lady became involved with the blind through bowling. She helped organize and get sanctioned the Memphis Blind Bowlers so that they could bowl in the American Blind Bowlers Association. She has been involved with blind people ever since in many ways. Her first ACB convention was in 1995. Let's all sing happy birthday and congratulate Dorothy Dot Taylor on receiving the James R. Olson Distinguished Service Award. Usually, I'm not at a loss for words, but this is about more than I can handle, Dot Taylor quipped. James Olson I met when he came to Memphis to bowl and was one of the first people I met when I joined ACB. I really appreciate the honor. I didn't know when you got old you got so many honors. Thank you very much. When the cheers and applause faded, the group serenaded her with happy birthday. Taylor added, I just had my pacemaker checked and it's good for nine more years so I'm planning to be here on my 100th birthday. But no singing. Marie Brinus from the Old Dominion Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired gave a special presentation for a dear friend and colleague. Virginia has lost a favorite son, but Arizona, you're gaining a great guy, and that person is John McCann. She invited McCann to come forward while she read the plaque. It is rare that a lawyer does not know what to say, so mark the occasion, McCann said. This is an honor that I never expected to receive. Thank you so much. Tom reclaimed the microphone to introduce Christine Ha, the evening's keynote speaker. Good evening, everyone, Ha said. I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet. She called Houston, Texas home. I lost my vision several years ago due to an autoimmune condition called neuromyelitis optica, or NMO. I know that's a mouthful. My optic nerves atrophied over time, and it was at the same time that I was also teaching myself how to cook. And I started really gaining this passion for cooking. It was something I thought I would never be able to do again. Ha talked about being the only blind contestant on Master Chef. The staff gave her a sighted aide who would help her get around and figure out where everything was in the kitchen. But there were also a lot of rules placed on them, she noted. She couldn't tell me if something was still raw or burnt. I had to ask her very specific questions like, is this steak black or brown or red? And from that is how I determined if something was overcooked, cooked well, or raw. If she asked the aide to get the stand mixer, Ha couldn't touch anything on the workstation. All of us are a lot more capable than we give ourselves credit for, she added. I think if you really set your mind to it, and with the right kind of support, anything is achievable. 
She took a few questions from the audience. Tom then called on Shelley Hart for the final award presentation. This individual was nominated for an award this year because her accomplishments have underscored to the sighted world the degree to which a person who is blind is able to undertake daily activities that the general public often feels are beyond our capabilities, Hart said. She attained national acclaim winning the MasterChef contest. She is both an ambassador and a role model for our community. The 2015 ACB Awards Committee is proud to present the Durward K. McDaniel Ambassador Award to Ms. Christine Ha. Ha thanked ACB for the award. Afterward, the Door Prize Committee gave away the last few prizes. Then it was time for the Braille Forum drawing. Dan Spoon drew the winning tickets from the big box full of hopefuls. Five members of the Nashville Dance Club will share $5,000 as the first prize winners. Harold Edwards, Charles Wilcox, Peggy Ivey, Beth Corley, and Patricia Valadares attend a weekly ballroom dancing class for blind and visually impaired participants. Each winner will receive $1,000. Jane Sheehan of Silver Spring, Maryland, was the second prize winner of $1,000. Richard Preston of Fargo, North Dakota, won the $500 third prize. Thanks to everyone who purchased a ticket to support the ACB Braille Forum. We sold $14,000 worth of tickets and raised $7,500 for the forum, which will pay for one month's issue. Thanks to the ACB board for selling over 150 tickets. The top ticket sellers were Alan Peterson, 41, Tim Van Winkle, 35, Leslie Spoon, 30, and Mike Godino, 15. Caption. Banquet speaker Christine Ha, seated at the head table wearing a sleeveless v-neck ivory dress, listens as Jeff Tom introduces the head table. Notice of Class Action Settlement for Customers of Lululemon. If you are blind and purchased or attempted to purchase goods with a debit card at a Lululemon Athletic Store, Lululemon Athletica Showroom, Eviva Store, or Eviva Showroom, the Lululemon Stores, between January 1, 2010 and January 14, 2015, and were unable to independently use the point-of-sale equipment, the POS device, to conclude your purchase because the POS device was not tactile-enabled, your rights may be affected by a proposed class-action settlement. Excluded from the settlement class are officers, directors, and employees of Lululemon USA, Incorporated, and its parents and subsidiaries, collectively Lululemon, as well as judicial officers and employees of the court. A federal court authorized this notice. This is not a solicitation from a lawyer. The settlement resolves a lawsuit over Lululemon's use of a touchscreen POS device in Lululemon stores that impedes blind patrons' ability to independently make a debit card purchase. Lululemon has agreed to replace the POS devices in all Lululemon stores with new 
tactile-enabled devices that will be programmed to allow blind patrons to use the devices in the same manner as fully sighted patrons. Your legal rights are affected whether you act or do not act. Please read this notice carefully. Your legal rights and options in this settlement. Exclude yourself by November 6, 2015. You will not be giving up your right to sue Lululemon, but you cannot object and you will not be part of the settlement. Object by November 6, 2015. Write to the court about why you do not like the settlement. Go to a hearing on December 3, 2015. Ask to speak in court about the settlement. Do nothing. You give up the right to sue on your own regarding any claims that are part of the settlement. These rights and options, and the deadlines to exercise them, are explained below. The court in charge of this case has preliminarily approved the settlement, but still must decide whether to give final approval. The relief to be provided to settlement class members will only be provided if the court gives final approval to the settlement and after any appeals are resolved. Please be patient. Background Information 1. Why did I get this notice? If you are blind or visually impaired and attempted to or did use a debit card to purchase goods at a Lululemon store between January 1, 2010 and January 14, 2015, but could not do so independently because of the POS device used in the Lululemon store, then your rights could be affected under the proposed settlement that has been reached in a class action lawsuit against Lululemon. The court directed that this notice be posted because settlement class members have a right to know about the proposed settlement and about all of their options before the court decides whether to approve the settlement. If the court approves the settlement, and after objections and appeals are resolved, Lululemon will implement the benefits that the settlement provides. This notice explains the nature of the lawsuit the general terms of the proposed settlement, what benefits are available, who is eligible for them, and how to get them. The court in charge of this case is the United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida, and the case is known as David New and Access Now, Incorporated versus Lululemon, USA, Incorporated, case number one colon one four hyphen c v hyphen two zero five eight nine hyphen d p g the person and entity who sued David New and Access Now Inc. are called plaintiffs, and the company they sued, Lululemon USA Incorporated, is called the defendant. Two what is this lawsuit about? The lawsuit claimed, among other things, that the POS devices defendant uses in the Lululemon stores are inaccessible to blind patrons of the store because the POS devices are not tactile-enabled. As a consequence, blind patrons cannot independently use the POS devices— Plaintiffs contend that the defendant's use of the POS devices discriminates against blind patrons. 
defendant denies any wrongdoing and any liability whatsoever, and no court or other entity has made any judgment or other determination of any liability. The above description of the lawsuit is general and does not cover all of the issues and proceedings that have occurred. In order to see the complete file for the action, you should visit the website of the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, P-A-C-E-R, Service Center, located at http colon slash slash www.paser.gov slash you can also review a number of documents pertinent to this case, including the stipulation of settlement at www.accessnowsettlement.com, www.accessnowsettlement.com. 3. Why is this a class action? In a class action, one or more individuals and or entities, called class representatives, in this case plaintiffs David New and Access Now Incorporated, sue on behalf of people who have similar claims. All these people are a class or class members. One court resolves the issues for all class members, except those who exclude themselves from the class. U.S. District Court Judge Darren P. Gales is in charge of this class action. 4. Why is there a settlement? The court has not decided in favor of plaintiffs or defendant. Instead, both sides agreed to a settlement. That way, they avoid the cost of a trial, and the settlement class members receive relief now rather than years from now, if at all. The class representatives and their attorneys believe the settlement is in the best interests of the settlement class. 5. How do I know if I am part of the settlement? You first have to decide if you are a settlement class member. As described above, the court decided that everyone who fits this description is a settlement class member. Each blind person in the United States and its territories who, from January 1, 2010 to January 14, 2015, purchased or attempted to purchase goods at a Lululemon store with a debit card and was unable to independently use the POS device in the Lululemon store to complete their purchase. Excluded from the settlement class are officers, directors, and employees of Lululemon and its parents and subsidiaries, as well as judicial officers and employees of the court. The Proposed Settlement 6. What does the settlement provide? Lululemon has agreed to replace all POS devices in Lululemon stores with new, tactile-enabled devices that will be programmed to allow blind patrons to independently use all functions of the device to the same extent as fully sighted patrons. To read more about the new devices, visit the website www.accessnowsettlement.com. 7. When will the class receive this benefit? The court will hold a hearing on December 3, 2015, to decide whether to approve the settlement. 
If Judge Gales approves the settlement after that, there may be appeals. It is always uncertain whether these appeals can be resolved, and resolving them can take time, perhaps more than a year. Please be patient. Dismissal of Action and Release of All Claims 8. What am I giving up to receive these benefits or stay in the class? Unless you exclude yourself, you are staying in the settlement class, and that means you cannot sue, continue to sue, or be part of any other lawsuit against defendant about the legal issues in this case. It also means that all of the court's orders will apply to you and legally bind you. If you do not exclude yourself upon the effective date, you will release all released claims, as defined below, against the releases, as defined below. Released claims means all claims, actions, causes of action, administrative claims, demands, debts, damages, costs, attorney's fees, obligations, judgments, expenses or liabilities, in law or equity, whether now known or unknown, contingent or absolute, other than claims for personal injury, that plaintiffs or any member of the settlement class now have or, absent this stipulation, may in the future have had against releasees or any of them by reason of any act, omission, harm, matter, cause, or event whatsoever that has occurred at any time up to and including the entry of the preliminary approval order, that has been alleged in this lawsuit or could have been alleged in the lawsuit or in another court action and relates, one, to any of the alleged inadequacies, misstatements, or issues of or associated with the POS devices alleged in this lawsuit or, two, to any act, omission, damage, matter, cause, or event whatsoever arising out of or related to the initiation, defense, or settlement of the lawsuit or the claims or defenses asserted or that could have been asserted in the lawsuit. Claims under any state disability law are specifically excluded from the released claims. Releasees means a. Lululemon together with its respective predecessors and successors in interest, parents, subsidiaries, affiliates, and assigns, past, present, and future officers, directors, agents, representatives, employees, attorneys, and insurers, and b. All suppliers, distributors, dealers, retailers, trade partners, licensors, licensees, franchisees, public relations firms, advertising and production agencies, and other entities, whether foreign or domestic, who were or are in the chain of or played any role in the design, testing, manufacture, assembly, distribution, marketing, sale, lease, installation, or servicing of the POS devices or their component parts. The effective date will occur when an order entered by the court approving the settlement becomes final and not subject to appeal. Excluding yourself from the settlement. 
If you do not want a payment from this settlement, but you want to keep any right you may have to sue or continue to sue the defendant and the other releasees on your own about the released claims, then you must take steps to get out. This is called excluding yourself, or is sometimes referred to as opting out of the settlement class. 9. How do I get out of the settlement? To exclude yourself from the settlement class, you must send a letter or postcard stating A. The name of the action, David New and Access Now, Incorporated versus Lululemon, USA, Incorporated, case number 1 colon 14 hyphen CV hyphen 20589-DPG. B. Your full name, address, telephone number, and signature. And C. A statement that you want to be excluded from the settlement, postmarked no later than November 6, 2015, to the claims administrator at Lululemon POS Device Class Settlement, Claims Administrator, P.O. Box 40007, College Station, Texas, 77842-4007. You cannot exclude yourself on the phone or by email. If you ask to be excluded, you cannot object to the settlement. However, you will not be legally bound by anything that happens in this lawsuit. 10. If I do not exclude myself, can I sue the defendant and the other releasees for the same thing later? No. Unless you exclude yourself, you give up the right to sue defendant for the claims that the settlement resolves. If you have a pending lawsuit, speak to your lawyer in that pending lawsuit immediately. You must exclude yourself from this settlement class to continue your own lawsuit. Remember, the exclusion deadline is November 6, 2015. The Lawyers Representing the Class 11. Do I have a lawyer in this case? The court ordered that the law firm of Leon Cosgrove, LLP, in Coral Gables, Florida, will represent the settlement class. Those lawyers are called class counsel. You will not be charged for these lawyers— if you want to be represented by your own lawyer, you may hire one at your own expense. 12. How will the lawyers be paid? Class counsel will ask the court for up to $37,000 to cover all of their attorney's fees and costs and for payment of up to $7,000 face value in Lululemon gift cards to the plaintiffs David New and Access Now Incorporated, jointly for their services as class representatives. The court may award less than these amounts. Defendant will separately pay the attorney's fees and expenses and plaintiff payments that the court awards, and no additional payments will be required from the settlement class members. Defendant has agreed not to oppose these attorney's fees and expenses and plaintiff payment. Defendant will also separately pay the costs to administer the settlement. Copies of class counsel's applications for attorney's fees, expenses, and plaintiff award will be available on the settlement website, www.accessnowsettlement.com. Objecting to the Settlement 
you can tell the court that you do not agree with the settlement or some part of it. 13. How do I tell the court that I do not like the settlement? If you are a settlement class member, you can object to the settlement if you do not like any part of it. You can give reasons why you think the court should not approve it. The court will consider your views. To object, you must send a signed letter stating that you object to the proposed settlement in David New and Access Now, Incorporated versus Lululemon USA, Incorporated. Case number 1 colon 14 hyphen CV hyphen 20589-DPG. Your written objection must include 1. Your name, address, and telephone number. 2. The full case name and number. David New and Access Now Incorporated versus Lululemon USA Incorporated. Case number 1 colon 14 hyphen CV hyphen 20589 hyphen DPG. 3. A statement that you are a settlement class member. 4. A statement of each objection asserted. 5. A detailed description of the facts underlying each objection. 6. A detailed description of the legal authorities supporting each objection. 7. A statement of whether you intend to appear and speak at the fairness hearing and, if so, how much time you anticipate needing to present the objection. 8. A list of the exhibits that you may offer during the fairness hearing, along with copies of such exhibits. And 9. Your signature. In addition, if applicable, please include 1. The identity of all counsel who represent you, including any former or current counsel who may be entitled to compensation for any reason related to your objection. 2. The number of times in which you, your counsel, if any, or your counsel's law firm, if any, has objected to a class action settlement within the three years preceding the date that the objector files the objection and the caption of each case in which such objection was made. And three, a statement disclosing any consideration that you, your counsel, if any, or your counsel's law firm, if any, has received in connection with the resolution or dismissal of an objection to a class action settlement within the three years preceding the date that the objector files the objection. The deadline to file your objection is November 6, 2015. The objection must be filed with the court by that date. The address to file your written objection with the United States District Court is... Clerk of the Court, U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida, Wilkie D. Ferguson, Jr., United States Courthouse, 400 North Miami Avenue, Miami, Florida, 33128. You must also send a copy of your written objection to counsel for both parties at the addresses below. Class Counsel, Andrew Bowes, Esquire, Leon Cosgrove, LLP, 255 Alhambra Circle, Suite 424, Coral Gables, Florida, 33134. Defendant's Counsel, 
Frederick McClure, Esquire, D.L.A. Piper, L.L.P., U.S., 100 North Tampa Street, Suite 2200, Tampa, Florida, 33602-5809. If you do not timely make your objection, you will be deemed to have waived all objections and will not be entitled to speak at the fairness hearing. 14. What is the difference between objecting and excluding? Objecting is simply telling the court that you do not like something about the settlement. You can object only if you remain a settlement class member. Excluding yourself is telling the court that you do not want to be a part of the case and wish to forego the relief provided by the settlement. If you exclude yourself, you have no basis to object because the case no longer affects you. The Court's Fairness Hearing The Court has preliminarily approved the settlement agreement and will hold a hearing on December 3, 2015, to decide whether to give final approval to the proposed settlement. You may attend and you may ask to speak, but you do not have to. 15. When and where will the court decide whether to approve the proposed settlement? The court will hold the fairness hearing at 9.30 a.m. on December 3, 2015, at the Wilkie D. Ferguson, Jr. United States Courthouse, 400 North Miami Avenue, Miami, Florida, 33128, in room 11-2, At this hearing, the court will consider whether the settlement is fair, reasonable, and adequate. If there are objections, the court will consider them. Judge Gales will listen to people who have asked to speak at the hearing. See Question 17 for more information about speaking at the hearing. After the fairness hearing, the court will decide whether to approve the settlement and whether to award any attorney's fees and expenses and awards to plaintiffs David New and Access Now Incorporated. We do not know how long these decisions will take. 16. Do I have to come to the hearing? No. Class counsel will answer questions Judge Gales may have, but you are welcome to come at your own expense. If you send an objection, you do not have to come to the court to talk about it. As long as you filed your written objection on time, the court will consider it. You may also pay your own lawyer to attend, but it is not necessary. Settlement class members do not need to appear at the hearing or take any other action to indicate their approval. 17. May I speak at the hearing? You may ask the court for permission to speak at the fairness hearing. To do so, you must send a letter saying that it is your Notice of Intention to Appear in David New and Access Now Incorporated versus Lululemon USA Incorporated, case number 1 colon 14 hyphen CV hyphen 20589 hyphen DPG. Be sure to include your name, address, telephone number, and your signature. Your notice of intention to appear must be postmarked no later than November 6, 2015, and be sent to the clerk of the court, class counsel, and defense counsel 
at the three addresses in question 13. Unless otherwise ordered by the court, you cannot speak at the fairness hearing if you excluded yourself from the settlement class or if you have not provided written notice of your intention to speak at the fairness hearing by the deadline identified and in accordance with the procedures described in this section and question 13 above. If you do nothing. 18. What happens if I do nothing at all? If you do nothing, you will not be able to start a lawsuit, continue with a lawsuit, or be a party to any other lawsuit against defendant and the other releasees about the legal issue in this case ever again. Getting more information. 19. Are there more details about the settlement? This notice summarizes the proposed settlement. More detailed terms are in the signed stipulation. You can get a copy of the stipulation by writing to class counsel at the address above or by visiting www.accessnowsettlement.com, where you will also find answers to common questions about the settlement, class counsel's papers in support of the settlement, and their applications for attorney's fees, expenses, and plaintiff awards, after they are filed, and other documents. All other papers that have been filed in the action may be inspected at the Office of the Clerk of the Court of the United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida, Wilkie D. Ferguson, Jr., United States Courthouse, 400 North Miami Avenue, Miami, Florida, 33128, during regular business hours. Please do not call the court or the clerk of court for additional information about the settlement. Lynn Manning dies at 60. Blind poet, athlete. Watts Theater Group founder by Steve Chalkins. Reprinted from the Los Angeles Times, August 5, 2015. I knew Lynn Manning for a number of years and respected him and his work greatly. He was the 2005 winner of ACB's Vernon Henley Media Award for his work with the staff and cast of Blind Justice. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to see his one-man play, Waits and was moved by his ability to overcome both the challenge of poverty and later losing his vision in a split-second act of violence. While not an ACB member, he was one of the blind people who did a Hetlio's Non-24 commercial for Vanda Pharmaceuticals. In 2010, Joel Snyder invited Lynn Manning to keynote the Audio Description Project Conference. Most recently, Lynn was invited to be a part of an ADA anniversary event in Washington, D.C. Rest easy, Lynn. Mitch Pomerantz. After a stranger blinded him with a gunshot to the face at a Hollywood bar, Lynn Manning never thirsted for revenge. He had a life, after all. At 23, he had to learn how to get around by himself. To stay fit, he took up martial arts and became a world champion in blind judo. To stay sane, he wrote funny, angry, poignant poems and read them at poetry slams. To grapple with stage fright, he studied acting. 
to find his voice on a tangle of profound issues that were wrapped up in having a disability and being an African-American. He wrote acclaimed one-act plays and co-founded a theater company in Watts. Manning's assailant tangled with him in a pinball tournament and came back with a gun. He was never found. I sincerely hope he gets what's coming to him, but I don't dwell much on it, Manning told a Pennsylvania newspaper, the Allentown Morning Call, in 2007. Some say it's important for a victim to get closure, but I think if you need that sort of thing to move forward, you're still a victim. Manning, who last month attended a White House celebration on the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, died Monday at his Los Angeles home. He was 60. He had liver cancer, said Eric Inman, managing director of the Watts Village Theater Company, a group established by Manning and local activist Quentin Drew in 1996. The group, which at times has eked by on bare-bones budgets, offers professional theater in one of the city's poorest neighborhoods. Manning was its guiding spirit and artistic director. He spoke about how theater had the ability to give light to those who would otherwise be invisible, Inman said, whether in the underserved community of South L.A. or to those in the disabled community. After he lost his sight, Manning discovered disturbing similarities between the two worlds. In his poem, The Magic Wand, he vividly summed up the prejudices he encountered daily. Quick-change artist extraordinaire, I whip out my folded cane and change from black man to blind man with a flick of my wrist. From God-gifted wizard of round ball dominating backboards across America to God-gifted idiot savant pounding out chart-busters on a cockeyed whim. From sociopathic gangbanger with death for eyes to all-seeing soul with saintly spirit. My final form is never of my choosing, he reminded his listeners. I only wield the wand. You are the magician. In his plays, Manning often riffed on the themes of discrimination and violence. In 1990, he based Shoot on the true story of a blind friend who navigated L.A.'s mean streets with a 9 millimeter handgun for protection. In Before the Drive to Oakwood Station, he wrote a 20-minute monologue by a postal worker who had just killed his family and was about to take out his co-workers and himself. Manning's best-known piece is the autobiographical Waits, which traces his life from a tortured childhood up to the shooting. In addition to his Los Angeles performances, Manning played himself in productions off-Broadway, as well as in Edinburgh and Adelaide, Australia. In the absence of that vastness, that visual feast, I came to recognize the overwhelming distraction that sight had been, he told his audience. I had never noticed that sound moves the way it does, or feels the way it does. And what about this pulse, this radiation that flows from all things, and the smells, good God, the smells. Who knew such sensory lushness existed in this more immediate realm? Blind people had to have known all along. Born in Fresno on April 30, 1955, 
Manning grew up in a large family in South L.A. When he was seven, his mother nearly killed his stepfather with a butcher knife. Over the years, he lived in six foster homes and attended nine schools. Despite tough circumstances, he did well. He studied art at Los Angeles Community College and dreamed of becoming a painter in Paris. But Manning was accustomed to loss, and dreams were just something else to lose. Growing up, I had developed a habit of always preparing for the worst, he said in a 2014 Times profile. Even before the shooting, I'd thought, since you love painting so much, how would you survive if it was taken away from you? It was hard for everyone around me to believe, but I looked at it like this wasn't the worst thing that ever happened. Within a year of his shooting, on October 25, 1978, Manning started his judo lessons at the Braille Institute in Los Angeles. In 1990, he took gold at the World Games for the Disabled in the Netherlands and silver at the 1992 Paralympics in Barcelona. For me, it was a really good outlet for anger and getting out my frustration of living blind in a sighted world, he told a University of Oregon publication in 2008. In 1989, he was a technical advisor to actor Rutger Hauer, who played a blind, sword-wielding, karate-chop-throwing action hero in the film Blind Fury. Lynn taught me how to unfocus my eyes, to react to smells and sounds, Hauer told People magazine. He could pick up the patterns of your breathing if you were upset. Manning also appeared in commercials, and had small roles on several TV shows, including Seinfeld. Divorced twice, he is survived by his father and several brothers and sisters. His sister, Dorothy Rabun, described him as a genius and a survivor who was deeply loved by all. Here and There Edited by Sharon Strakowski the announcement of products and services in this column does not represent an endorsement by the American Council of the Blind, its officers, or staff. Listings are free of charge for the benefit of our readers. The ACB eForum cannot be held responsible for the reliability of the products and services mentioned. To submit items for this column, send a message to s-l-o-v-e-r-i-n-g at a-c-b dot o-r-g or phone the National Office at 1-800-424-8666 and leave a message in Sharon Lovering's mailbox. Information must be received at least two months ahead of publication date. Children's Book About White Cane Safety Day How do you celebrate White Cane Day on October 15th? Make sure all your friends and neighbors know about it. Kristen Grender a TVI and O&M instructor in Wisconsin, has written a storybook for young kids that explains the day, the white cane, and why we celebrate it. While the book is cute and easy to read, it also expresses why the white cane is important and how to follow the white cane law. It also teaches another lesson. Visual impairments do not have to hold you back from success. You can find the book on Amazon www.amazon.com slash 
W-H-I-T-E-C-A-N-E-D-A-Y-K-R-I-S-T-I-N-G-R-E-N-D-E-R slash D-P slash 16331-86075 slash R-E-F equal T-M-M underscore P-A-P underscore S-W-A-T-C-H underscore zero question mark. E-N-C-O-D-I-N-G equal sign U-T-F eight ampersand Q-I-D equal sign one four three nine eight four eight nine one two ampersand SR equal sign eight dash one. It is also available on book patch at www dot t h e b o o k p a t c h dot c o m slash b o o k s t o r e slash w h i t e dash c a n e dash d a y slash b six three seven eight c c seven dash eight six nine three dash four six five five dash a nine seven five dash four b five nine four f a d zero eight four one question mark ISBN equal sign nine seven eight one six three three one eight six zero seven one Low Vision Research Initiative Research to Prevent Blindness RPB has launched a new research initiative to address urgent needs in understanding and treating low vision. The one point two million dollar two pronged initiative involves funding partnerships with Lions Club's International Foundation, LCIF, and Reader's Digest Partners for Sight Foundation, RDP-FS. Both grants are intended to provide seed funding for high-risk, high-gain, innovative, cutting-edge research which demonstrates out-of-the-box thinking. The LCIF grant targets damage to the visual system. Some of the issues awardees will be challenged to tackle are what happens to degraded visual input and how is it processed? What are the adaptive strategies in the visual pathway in response to visual impairment? How does the brain reorganize itself in response to visual system damage? How can the visibility of objects be enhanced? The RDPFS grant will promote the development of assistive devices for people with low vision. It will focus on mobile and or wearable innovations that can be implemented on multiple platforms, such as electronic tablets or phones. It will also support environmental adaptations, which can improve a visually impaired individual's ability to perform a daily living activity. Applications for the RDPFS grant are due October 19. Nominations for the LCIF grant are due December 15. Guidelines, application forms, and grant contact information are available at www.rpbusa.org slash rpb slash grants dash and dash r-e-s-e-a-r-c-h slash grants slash l-o-w dash v-i-s-i-o-n dash a-w-a-r-d-s slash i-n-n-o-v-a-t-i-o-n-s dash i-n dash T-E-C-H-N-O-L-O-G-Y dash L-O-W dash V-I slash. The Re-Image seeks content and contest submissions. The Re-Image 
is a new online campaign to recreate the image of people with vision loss while establishing new possibilities. With the sighted world as the audience for this project, the re-image will use written stories and audio pieces about and by people with vision loss to demonstrate that, as people, we are more alike than different. Share your experiences with raising children, owning a home, taking a trip, enjoying the outdoors, working, spending time with friends, dealing with family issues, managing a household, relaxing with a favorite hobby, etc. All story submissions will be considered for publication. In addition, monetary prizes of $100, $50, and $25 will be awarded to first, second, and third place winners respectively for stories submitted by November 1, 2015. Criteria considered for the prizes will be writing skill, writing style, appropriate tone of the article, and originality. All stories selected for publication will appear as we launch our new website, thereimage.net. Submission guidelines and sample stories may be found there, too. Email your stories to c-o-n-t-e-n-t at sign t-h-e-r-e-i-m-a-g-e dot net or send them to The Reimage, P.O. Box 13019, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17110. Ski for Light The 41st Annual Ski for Light, SFL International Week, will take place from Sunday, January 24th through Saturday, January 30th, 2016. It will take place in northwest lower Michigan on the grounds of Shanty Creek Resorts in Bel Air, Michigan. Located just 45 minutes from the Traverse City Airport, Shanty Creek Resorts is a 4,500-acre complex containing three housing and entertainment villages, both cross-country and downhill ski trails, a tubing hill, several swimming pools and hot tubs, a fitness center and spa, and much more. If you are a novice and want to learn how to cross-country ski, or if you have skied before and just want to be matched with an experienced guide and meet new friends for a wonderful week of fun in the snow, this is the event for you. Applications are due November 1. Late applications will be considered on a space-available basis. For more information or to apply, visit www.sfl.org event. If you have questions, contact Bob Hart at b-o-b-m-h-a-r-t-t at sign g-m-a-i-l dot com or by calling 703 845 3436 between 9 a.m. and 10 p.m. Eastern Time. ACB Officers President Kim Charlson, Second Term, 2017 57 Grandview Ave, Watertown, Massachusetts, 02472 First Vice President Jeff Tom, Second Term, 2017 7414 Mooncrest Way Sacramento, California, 95831-4046. Second Vice President, John McCann. First Term, 2017, 8761 East Placita Boulevard, Tucson, Arizona, 85715-5650. Secretary, Ray Campbell. Second Term, 2017, 460 Rain Tree Court, Number 3K, Glen Ellen, Illinois, 60137. Treasurer, Carla Rushevel, 
Third Term, 2017, 148 Vernon Ave, Louisville, Kentucky, 40206. Immediate Past President, Mitch Pomerantz, 1115 Cordova Street, Number 402, Pasadena, California, 91106. ACB Board of Directors, Jeff Bishop, Tucson, Arizona, Partial Term, 2016, Burl Colley, Lacey Washington, Final Term, 2016, Sarah Conrad, Stevensville, Michigan, First Term, 2016, Katie Frederick, Worthington, Ohio, First Term, 2018, Michael Garrett, Missouri City, Texas, Final Term, 2016, George Holliday, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Final Term, 2018, Alan Peterson, Horace, North Dakota, Final Term, 2018, Patrick Sheehan, Silver Spring, Maryland, First Term, 2018, Dan Spoon, Orlando, Florida, First Term, 2016, David Trott, Talladega, Alabama, First Term, 2018, Ex Officio, Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia, ACB Board of Publications, Denise Colley, Chairman, Lacey Washington, Second Term, 2017, Ron Brooks, Phoenix, Arizona, Second Term, 2017, Tom Mitchell, Salt Lake City, Utah, First Term, 2016, Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia, First Term, 2016, Judy Wilkinson, San Leandro, California, First Term, 2016, Ex Officios, Nolan Crabb, Columbus, Ohio, Bob Hache, Waltham, Massachusetts, Burl Colley, Lacey, Washington. Accessing your ACB Braille and e-forums. The ACB e-forum may be accessed by email on the ACB website via download from the webpage in Word, plain text, or Braille-ready file, or by phone at 605-475-8154. To subscribe to the email version, visit the ACB email lists page at www.acb.org. The ACB Braille Forum is available by mail in Braille, large print, half-speed four-track cassette tape, data CD, and via email. It is also available to read or download from ACB's webpage and by phone 605-475-8154. Subscribe to the podcast versions from your second-generation Victor Reader stream or from www.acb.org slash bf.